When it comes to investing, retirement, and legacy planning, the decisions you make today can greatly impact the quality of life for both you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight, unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your financial future. Good news. You found the Growing Your Wealth radio show with Brian Evans. Brian is the founder of Madrona Financial Services, and with his background as a CPA, he brings a unique perspective to the investment and financial planning world. So get ready for an hour full of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Thank you so much. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to invest better, live better, retire better, and give better. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions for you. But the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. How you doing today, Brian? Doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Always glad to hear that. As always, I am glad our listeners are with us. Hope everybody is doing well today, too. We've got another fine show lined up for you for your physical fitness and your financial education. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the true meaning of a fiduciary. You've heard that term bandied about a lot, but what does that mean, the true meaning of that? Also, many people, when they get ready to retire, are faced with a decision, should I take a lump sum or take a monthly pension? So we'll talk about the pros and cons of that. Also, when the Dow should hit 50,000 and why. Interesting article that Brian wrote for Kiplinger. Also, we'll talk about the relative size of the markets, the stocks, the bonds, the real estate, all that sort of thing, and we'll discuss that in depth on today's show. So, Brian, let's talk about the true meaning of a fiduciary. You are held to a fiduciary standard, so exactly what does that mean? Yeah, a lot of people say, I'm a fiduciary. Well, technically speaking, nobody's a fiduciary. That's not an actual license. But uh, licensing is that you can be held to something called a fiduciary standard. So to be paid to give investment advice, you need to be licensed. Now, you can get your license a couple different ways. You can get a SEC Series 7, say, uh, and be affiliated with a broker-dealer. Or you can get your Series 65 and put people into stock market type investments and you're held to a fiduciary standard with that. So the broker-dealer, and I'll just kind of state what that is. So the broker-dealers, typically larger companies, Merrill Lynch, you know, Edward Jones, all those, they're going to be broker-dealers. And they're compensated by commissions from the sale of investment products. And they're held to a suitability standard. That's something below a fiduciary standard. But it's just different. They call it suitability. Now, some broker-dealers are duly licensed, and that one's, you know, where certain things they sell on a commission and certain things are held to a fiduciary standard. Now, registered investment advisor representatives, such as myself, are held to the fiduciary standard. And then there's also, you might, I'll throw in insurance people. Some insurance licensed folks might claim they are held to fiduciary standard, but they don't offer stock market investments. So we have to be a little careful about that. We'll talk about that uh, as we get into this a bit, but I just wanted to kind of lay it out. The broker dealer, registered investment advisory rep, and insurance licensed folks. So there are broker-dealers, and then there are advisors held to the fiduciary standard. So what exactly does being held to a fiduciary standard mean? Yeah, well, it depends on the person that's actually offering the service, because I'll put this out there. I've run into and heard from a number of people that claim to be held to the fiduciary standard or call themselves fiduciaries. 
and really don't act as one. And the reason I say that is because if you, you know, it's my old analogy, uh, if you have one thing to sell, you're a hammer and everybody else looks like a nail. I mean, you're going to pound on that thing that you're selling. If I'm selling gold, all I'm going to do is say, you need gold in your portfolio, lots of it. If I'm selling annuities and that's all I sell, I'm going to say you need annuity. If I'm that big company and I say you should hate annuities and, and all you sell is the stock market, you're just going to tell her you need the stock market. Well, what about real estate? Nope. No, you need the stock market. Well, why? And they say, well, we're fiduciaries. I'm like, well, first off, I just heard that you can't call yourself a fiduciary from Brian. Mm-hmm. You're held to a fiduciary standard, technically. And if you're only selling one thing, are you really interested in my best interest? Or maybe you're going to give advice on how you're getting paid. And so that's where you got to follow the money. So if someone says they're held to fiduciary standard, make sure that they're not just selling one product because how in the world could they? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're going to convince themselves, oh, no, because it's in your best interest. And I've, I've seen this happen. It's like, well, I think, you know, these such and such are in the best client's best interest. And you say, well, you haven't even met the client yet. You've already made that determination <laughs> because that's how you get paid. So don't tell me you're acting in a fiduciary capacity if you only offer one or two things. If you don't offer annuities and the stock market and passive real estate and, 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 then I'm not sure you can be one act in that capacity. Now, conversely, even folks that are not held to that standard, broker-dealers, there's some very good broker-dealers out there that really do put their clients' best interests first, but they're not required to by law. They're required to be, they call it the suitability standard, and that is not the same as putting your clients' best interests first. So again, it depends on the service provider as to whether there's a fiduciary relationship going on or not. So how can you tell if someone is truly a fiduciary or held to the fiduciary standard? I mean, do they just say, hey, I'm held to the fiduciary standard? Is there some other way that you can look and vet this sort of thing? Well, funny you say that because I've, I've had people ask me that before. I, and I said, well, just ask. And, and I, they come back and say, well, yeah, I, I asked my advisor if, if he's fiduciary. And after about a 30-minute answer, I, I still wasn't sure. I said, well, that's pretty clear he's not. Because <laughs> <laughs> if somebody asked me, are you held, are you a fiduciary? I'd say, well, I'm held to the fiduciary standard, yes. And then, oh, okay, you don't have to qualify your answer, no. Well, if I'm not held to that, then I'm probably going to have a big, long explanation as to why uh, you shouldn't worry about it. And and so I guess the longer the response, the, the better your chance of knowing that they are not when you ask that question. But uh, certainly you can ask. Uh, or again, if, if you find out they're licensing, but most people don't ask me, well, what license, SEC license do you have, Brian? Mm-hmm. No, I don't get asked that. I get asked, are you fiduciary? And I, I did write a Kiplinger article on that once. When is fiduciary truly acting like one? Because I was calling out those that, again, sell one product claim to be held to fiduciary standard, but really they kind of use that to get you to let your guard down because they're only going to try and sell you one product. They know that going in before they've asked you two questions about your financial situation, whether it makes sense. I mean, I, I've got clients all the time I run into and I'll say uh, maybe a, a DST or something absolutely makes sense or absolutely does not make sense in your situation or an annuity, lifetime guaranteed cash flow totally makes sense for this person. Next person, I totally doesn't make sense and go on and on. So you have to have all the different, you know, product solutions and, and so forth. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest things I've noticed about being held that standard is that 
if you are, you find yourself turning away a lot of potential business because it's not in their best interest. So if somebody comes to me with a great stock portfolio and, and they say, you know, I just, I just want to be in stocks. I'm like, well, why are you going to hire somebody to do that? You're doing great. Oh, really? I'm like, yeah, you're, you, no one's going to do any better. You're, you know, same stock market as Merrill Lynch or me or anybody else. And you're doing great with it. You follow it. You, you, you want to be in that. Why, why would you pay somebody to do that? Oh, really? Or, or somebody's coming to me with a DST. I need a DST. Why? You got a triple net lease, an investment grade corporation as a tenant. I mean, well, it's no problem. You just cash a check every month. Why do you want to sell that? That's a great investment. Oh, really? Yeah. And I say, well, you don't get paid if I don't sell it. money. Like, that's right. So turning away business that I could otherwise get paid for reminds me why I am held to a fiduciary standard. Mm-hmm. If someone's just trying to sell you to get your, your money over and so they get paid, they, they probably aren't. So, Brian, if there is no certificate on the wall like your license that says I'm held to a fiduciary standard and you are an investor interviewing an investment advisor, what are some of the questions that you should be asking this advisor to truly determine whether or not they're held to a fiduciary standard? Yeah, that is tough. I mean, I would know qualifying questions. I'd, I'd throw out some case studies and you know, I'd say, okay, what would you advise me in these situations? And if the advice is always, well, sell that and buy what I sell you, then it's pretty clear. But most, most of the time, it's not going to be that easy. It's going to be tough. You know, I obviously being held to the fiduciary standard and that being a, a, a better standard for the client on paper, I would suspect most people would want to think that their advisor is held to that standard. But then in addition, as I've been pointing out in this segment, basically probably one of the best ways is what are the things that you offer? Do you offer DSTs and FIULs and annuities and stock market? And do you use individual stocks? Uh, ask them if they're getting paid a commission. Mm-hmm. These are these are fair questions. If they won't answer them, then you probably don't want to work with that person because uh, they should be transparent. But uh, yeah, it's not always easy. Uh, well, one easy way is if if you have at least five hundred thousand dollars and you're looking for a new advisor, you know we're <laughs> we're taking new clients, so yeah. we are held to that standard. We have all the different stuff. So there you go. Uh, just go to Madrona, but uh, <laughs> just tongue in cheek there. But uh, no, so it, it's not that easy. Are there different levels of fiduciary? What I mean by that is earlier you said that some people say they're fiduciaries, they're really not. But are some people more a fiduciary than others? Yeah, like I said, that's in the mind of the provider, the salesperson in this case. As I mentioned, I I remember I was on hold with this. uh, I got a a call from this advisor. He wanted to ask me a question that I knew. And I'm listening to their, uh, when I was on hold, their message. We are your full service financial advisor. We are fiduciaries, on and on and on. And I asked him, I said, will you tell me, I thought you guys only sold annuities from one company and that's all you did. He goes, well, actually, we only sell one of the annuities from the one company. I say, well, how about your stock market investments? Oh, we don't do that. Well, real estate, no, we don't do that. Oh, you sell one annuity from one company, wow. not a second annuity from that one, just the one. Yeah. How much did you guys do a year? Uh, $40 million. I'm like, okay. You are not a full-service financial I'm thinking. I didn't tell him this. Sure. You are not a full-service financial advisor, and you are not fiduciaries, nor are you even close to acting like one. So it was pretty annoying to me. But anyway, so that, that was that's probably the most blatant example of somebody hiding behind uh, the word fiduciary. We've been talking about being held to a fiduciary standard here with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Vower Evans CPAs. Once again, if you have at least $500,000 to invest, 
you're looking for an advisor that is truly held to the fiduciary standard who's not all about the fees but is rather about what is best for you. We urge you to contact Madrona Financial at 844-MADRONA to get your complimentary financial plan as in no cost and no obligation. 844-MADRONA. You could also request it online at madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. We'll be right back with more of our show after this. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with your host, Brian Evans. Now, here's Brian. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about the difference between taking a lump sum or a pension. And Brian, you're retiring from a company, you're separating from a company, you're going to need to decide between lifetime cash flow or a lump sum. For many people retiring from a company such as Boeing here, many times they're offered a lump sum. You have the choice of taking that lump sum or a monthly annuity, a fixed amount that you're going to be getting for the rest of your life on a monthly basis. Many times, though, there are some cost of living increases, but that's a big decision that one has to take. So what is the first thing that you want to consider in terms of whether or not you want to take the lump sum or the monthly annuity? Yeah, it is a tough decision because uh, people ask me, well, which one's better? I said, well, I just need to know a couple things. We can we can compute this out. And, oh, really? I said, yeah. All I need to know is how long you're going to live. <laughs> okay. They're all going, huh? Uh, what's the rate of return going to be on your investments if you invested it? You know, what, uh, you know, you start getting in these questions like, well, I don't know those. I'm like, exactly. We don't know exactly which one's best, but we can do our best to figure out for us which one's better. So yeah, I might go to one person and say, well, which do you want? Do you want $2,500 a month for life or do you want $600,000? I'm like, hmm. That's a tough call. So one of the things I like to do is go, okay, if it's 2500 a month, say, and that's uh, 30000 a year versus 600000 I'll take my 600000 divided by thirty grand. i will say, how many years would it take for me to receive this money to where my break-even is the lump sum? And in this case, it's twenty. So if I'm 72 years old, I'm going to say, you know, I'm probably going to take the lump sum. Mm-hmm. If I'm 52, you know, I'm probably going to take the monthly. So those are real easy. Okay, I, I, that was a layup. But it's you generally you're getting to the point. Okay, I'm 62, and I got okay. I can get my break even's age 82 in this case, and so everything after 82 is earnings essentially. And if I pass away before then, it's a loss to my estate because it goes away when I die. You know, now we're starting to go, oh, maybe that may, maybe it's a little tougher or actually that one's probably pretty easy. I'd take the lump sum. But so as I mentioned, Jeff, it's just, it's just difficult. But I think the first step is to say, what is my break even in number of years, assuming I don't have a cost of living adjustment in my pension? Well, there's certainly safety in knowing that I'm going to be receiving this pension for the rest of my life. But as you said, you don't know how long you're going to live. And when you die, that pension goes with you. So if you're able to take the 600000 and invest that, is there a good possibility that maybe you can beat on a monthly basis in, insofar as income goes, uh, you know, what they're offering you in a pension? Well, that's that's what a lot of people would, would consider. Now, if you're going to take that money and say, well, I'm going to take a lump sum, but I'm going to play it safe and put it into a CD. I don't want to take a chance on that. Well, then no. You're, you're probably way better off taking the pension. You know, again, these are just layups here. These are easy calls. Whereas if you say to me, no, I am going to invest in the market and I know I'm quite certain I'm going to get at least 7% a year. I'm like, well, okay, you invest 600000 at 7% for 10 years compounded. 
uh, that doubles in, in value. So your 600000 would be a million two. You'd be way better taking the lump sum. If you weren't going to touch it, you didn't need it, and you believe your investments are going to do really well. So those again, that was that's an easy one. Most people I talk to are somewhere in between. They want some safety in their investments. They want some growth, and you know they got to kind of work through the computation. So it's it's really almost uh, it's not a something you just put on paper and I just go okay I, I come up with the answer I know the answer for you. Everybody's going to have a little different take on you know, their, their security, their need for security. And, and if they're just like, I am petrified of the market, mm-hmm. well then, okay, this is an easy call. You're going to take the pension. Or they might say, well, I'm petrified of the market, but I have a, you know, a blood disease and I, you know, I may only live five years. I mean, well then don't take the pension, take the lump sum. You know, again, there's, there can be clues in the analysis that make it real easy to talk someone through it and, and make a decision. But again, a lot of the times I talk to people, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, I have longevity, but I'm a little overweight or da, 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 or mm-hmm. you know what? It's, it's, it's not real clear. Well, we're not promised tomorrow. So I, I you know, no matter how fit you are or what happened. I mean, you know, things happen in, in life. So, you know, that's one thing to consider is safety versus having that lump sum. Brian, when you're making this decision, do tax considerations come into play here? Uh, yeah, tax considerations, uh, not as much, uh, simply because in the lump sum situation, you're going to not take it in as taxable income all up front. You're going to roll it into your IRA and you're going to decide when to take it over time. Uh, I would say legacy issues can, and whether you're married or not, absolutely can, because some people take a pension and it's you know life only for them, but if they're married, they want life uh, with it going to surviving spouse just in case. And and so that's one aspect. Another aspect is, again, when pensions and Social Security, when you pass away uh, without that spousal election for a pension, they just go away. They're not worth anything. And so some people might want to, well, let me take the money so I know at least I have that money. And even if you wanted lifetime cash flow, you might just take some of that and buy an annuity with it. That'll create a you know monthly check to you. One of the things about this, though, I, I did want to mention is often with like a Boeing pension or something like that, if you compare that to an annuity, the Boeing pension might be higher in many cases because it's a life only. So if you get uh, you start taking it and you have a life only pension and you get hit by the proverbial bus a, a year later, that's it. Your state got one year payment. You got 30 grand in our example and you lost out on the 600K in my example. So it's like, oh, maybe I don't want to take that risk. So there is some risk, but uh, because of that, because it has no residual value, they can pay a little bit higher than an annuity that does have residual value. And Brian, full disclosure here before I ask you this question, I currently do receive a pension from a performing arts union, and I annually get a statement that says how well the pension fund is funded. So is there a danger if you take the monthly benefit that maybe this pension fund could be reduced or you know completely go away? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Yes, there is a danger of that because you're relying on the assets within that fund to fund you for the rest of your life. And uh, if it's underfunded, you you got a problem. I remember doing a show years ago. I, I remember some stats. I think uh, New Jersey government employees were, uh, that pension plan was 19% funded. I remember the Chicago municipal workers was 3% funded. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, if they said, oh, we'll give you 2500 a month or, uh, you know, 150000 not even the 600 I'd probably take the one fifty. 
crazy because they're going under. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you got to be very, a little careful with that. Certainly, uh, you know, I've read the Boeing report. They're they're in fine shape uh, based on what I could see and, and all of that. But, yeah, there might be situations where you, you need to worry about the funding. Brian, it appears that there are a lot of moving parts to this decision. What do you recommend? Well, I recommend you do a financial plan because there's no other way to really look at this. And and sometimes I might do a plan and and I'll do with and without the pension. And uh, if somebody has other investments, maybe they have rentals and their spouse has taken a pension or or whatever, and then you throw in Social Security and and so forth, and they have annuities, maybe they might look at that and go, you know, I can just take that lump sum and invest it for long term. I'll probably do much better than I could from an annuity, you know, the company annuity. So why don't I just do that? Because I don't need to live on this money and I can take a little bit more risk. And generally, when you can take a little more risk and you have a longer time period with your investments, your returns can be higher than otherwise. So uh, some people will select that, but we, we can see that when we've done the financial plan. Conversely, we might do a financial plan and say, you know, you've told me you think you have longevity in your family and you don't really have any other sources of income and you don't really have time. You're going to need to live on this from day one from when you retire. Why don't you just take the, the pension? Because that, that would make more sense from you. And we did talk in the last segment about a fiduciary. And so be careful if you're getting advice on these, because remember, the person you're sitting across from you gets paid if you pick the lump sum and they invest your money. They do not get paid if you pick the monthly cash flow, the company pension. So understand that person may seem really nice and all that stuff, but understand their motivation internally, whether they want to fess up to that or not, is going to be to talk you into the lump sum. Now, again, sometimes that's very appropriate, but but just I just want to throw that one out there that uh, you got to have a little bit of a guard up when you're talking about this to somebody that can get paid based upon the outcome of your decision. Well, Brian, getting a lump sum and a pension, I mean, I sort of liken it to, uh, you know, let's say winning the lottery, getting a big cash windfall like that, and we know how well lottery winners do with their money. Is there the human side of this that you have to consider? What if I got 600000 Do I trust myself to uh, do the responsible thing with it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question, too, because, um, you know, I, I have friends that I've, I've had this conversation with, and they absolutely want the monthly check. I get that. I absolutely personally, Brian Evans, if I had the choice, I would pick the lump sum every single time mm-hmm. because I am confident in my investment abilities that I would have a good rate of return way in excess of whatever the internal rate of return would be on the company annuity. So for Brian Evans, advising Brian Evans, I'm taking a lump sum, like I said, virtually every time. Not every time. I've seen some pensions where I do that calculation. You break even is like 12 years. I'm like, 12 years? Are you kidding me? I'm going to take the monthly because somehow, some way, they negotiate a really high internal rate of return on the pension. But for the most part, I'm, you know, I'm going to take the lump sum. But often, I advise people not to take the lump sum, take the monthly because it just fits who they are much better. They're just people that, I just want to cash a checker. I don't want to worry about the market. I don't want to stress out. I'm retired. I'll be all worried all the time about a stock market crash. I'm like, okay, okay, take the monthly. 
Well, for Brian Evans, you would do the responsible thing, but, you know, truth be told, for Jeff Shade, if I got the 600000 and I drove by that Porsche dealership, I mm-hmm. would be very tempted to <laughs> stop in there and drop another hundred grand or something like there that. There you go, J- Jeff. Just for, yeah, that is yeah, sort of... Hey, that's retirement planning there. You'd be driving around the, the mean streets of Everett with your brand new Porsche, and, <laughs> that's, right. and that, that's some good retirement plan. Uh, yeah, exactly. Where's that uh, Porsche going to be, you know, when I'm 85 years old? Probably wouldn't be able to drive it. If you have questions about taking the lump sum or the pension, certainly you're invited to call Madrona Financial to get a financial plan that would include that. If you have $500,000 or more to invest, you're looking to hire a new financial advisor, a financial advisor that is held to the fiduciary standard, call 844-MADRONA, 844-MADRONA, or you can request your plan online at madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about when the Dow should hit 50,000 and why. All that and more when our show continues after this. Now, back to more of Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about an article I wrote that was entitled, When the Dow Should Hit 50,000 and Why. And Brian, the subtitle of this hint, it's just a math equation. So I want to go into this. At the recording of this particular program, the Dow middle 30s at this point. So the Dow Jones Industrial, let's talk about that a little bit for those people who don't know exactly what the Dow is. Define that. Yeah, the Dow is just 30 stocks, and and the 30 stocks rotate. I remember I I did a a CNBC uh, cable TV show once, the the big one, and they were talking about the 100 years of the Dow, and and I remember looking at the Dow from 100 years ago, and the only, I think there was only one company that was still on it that uh, even existed anymore out of the 30. You know, American Wire is no longer (laughs) in existence, and Buggy Whip, whatever company, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a whole, totally different company. So they, they rotate the companies, but they're supposed to be kind of a cross-section of the U.S. economy in 30 companies. And so Boeing's in it. You know, you got a couple tech companies. You got oil companies. You got all, all kinds of different in different industries. But that's what the Dow is. It's it's not something you actually invest directly into, but it's just an indication of where corporate America is at. So it's sort of like a measuring stick to a certain extent. So when someone says the Dow is 20 thousand, it's 25, it's 30,035. What does that mean? It's 35,000 what? It really doesn't mean anything. It's just a number that they they selected to uh, measure the combined uh, stock prices of the 30 companies by their measurement weights. But we can, you know, again, it's just an indicator. And the only use of that number is when you're using it in comparison to another time period where the Dow was higher or lower. So that's, that's how we use it, essentially. Oh, the Dow dropped 1,000 points. So that doesn't mean anything. I mean, if if the Dow is you know 20,000 and drops 1,000 points, that's that's 5%. If the Dow is 2,000 and drops 1,000 points, that's 50%. Well, you know, it, uh, it's just, uh, just a number. And we have to do the math in our heads when we hear this stuff. The Dow is up, the Dow is down, a number of... It's kind of a pet peeve when they go, the Dow was up 300 points today. Well, well so is that... You know, I, I, it sounds like a lot to me, uh, whereas the, the next person might say the Dow was up less than 1% today. I'm like, okay, no big deal. Well, they're the same thing. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, uh, it's, it's just a percentage thing. 
So the article goes on to point out that the Dow first eclipsed 1,000 in 1972, and you talked about 100 years of the Dow. Is the Dow growing faster now than it has in the last 100 years? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly we've had a quite the run since uh, the drop in 2008. Uh, the Dow is way up. But yeah, the, the equation, the math equation I'm, I'm talking about is I, I took the Dow and it eclipsed 1,000. You know, companies are valued at where they're valued for a reason. And the reason is earnings. You know, on, on, there's many reasons, but a big reason is earnings. So let's say a company on the market, all of its outstanding shares are worth a, a billion dollars and it's trading at 20 times earnings. Earnings, that means it's it's making $50 million to the bottom line. Uh, if it was t- a $10 billion company, maybe it's making $500 million to the bottom line every year. So it's, it's the earnings that generally dictate the overall market to some degree. And so if we look at the long-term average of the earnings relative to stock price, we'd see that you know, long-term it's, it's probably 17 to, to 20 plus times earnings over the, the long haul. So if you take that profitability and you realize that most companies are growing their profitability, so they're growing it uh, historically, I'll just throw out a number, and I used for this article at 7% a year. So by taking that, just doing this math, and I put it on an Excel spreadsheet, I said, well, if companies are growing you know, their earnings in, at 7% a year, and they were properly valued when the Dow was 1,000, uh, what would the, the number be? And when I wrote the article, uh, it was still below 20,000, and uh, the Dow was about 20,000 at the time. Now, it doesn't do it in a straight line, though. I want to point that out, just because my Excel spreadsheet had a perfectly straight, nice-looking curve on it. Uh, that's not reality. Uh, markets are very volatile, very volatile. We can have long periods of bad markets, think 2000 through 2009. We can have long periods of great markets, think the 10 years beginning in 2009. And so uh, this market is not going to go in a straight line. But my computation that I ran, actually from where it was 1000 to when I wrote that article, the Dow happened to be real close to the line that I thought it was about 20,000. If you extrapolated that line further and you say, okay, companies are continue to grow their earnings at 7% a year, then that line crossed 50,000 in the year 2030. We're talking about when the Dow should hit 50,000 and why. Brian, what would have to happen to interrupt these plans? I mean, what would have to happen to cause the Dow to sort of stall out? Uh, life. <laughs> just, there's a million things that can happen. And I, and I want to make clear, I am not making a projection here. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the, the Dow will hit 50,000 and why I said, you know, could or should based upon a math equation. Now, the Dow could be 15,000 in the year 2030. It could be 75,000 in the year 2030. But if corporations do what they've done for decade after decade, then there's kind of a range that one might expect the Dow to to be just based upon that. And so that's that's kind of the, you know, because a lot of people say, well, the Dow's high. Uh, it can't go any higher. I'm like, what are you talking about? I remember when it was 1,000. I was working as a public accountant when it was 2,000. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it go to three and people going, oh, the Dow's too high. I can't go ever go above three. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, and then you look back and go, well, what was I thinking? Of course it can go up. Companies make profit every year. 
a, a trillion dollar companies making you know billions of dollars of, of profit means so, so w- what are we talking about here of course they can go up over time and so that's kind of what we're looking at but there are so many things that can get in the way we've seen dot-com we saw uh, 9-11 we saw the banking collapse 2008 uh, covid sent it in a tailspin i remember 1987 the flash crash of that there's lots of you know, war any kind of war can throw a you know a big clinker into the markets uh, great depressions recessions whatever there's so many pandemics whatever it is there's so many reasons that a market can go south for a period of time but just overall big big picture 40,000 foot view markets do go up over time at a at an average rate and if you just extrapolate that average rate over the long haul you you be kind of it's kind of eye opening to see where it might be someday well america is very resilient as you said we've gone through all of these things and the dow continues to rise and businesses tend to adapt and change as well too you said that the dow could hit 50,000 by 2030 is there a pretty good chance that it could be even higher than that well we're certainly ahead of pace from when i wrote this article um I, I thought it would be well. You know, I didn't think it, I'm not even putting my own thoughts into this. Just a, again, a math equation, a, a Excel spreadsheet. But uh, it, it kind of indicated it would be lower than it is today. Uh, the Excel spreadsheet did not take into account the last what uh, 12, 13 years of a booming stock market that we've had without interruption, really, except for the the brief interruption of COVID, which uh, turned itself around uh, in a very short period of time. So definitely ahead of the curve there. And there's been a lot of innovation that, uh, especially from technological advances that have elevated companies way beyond any 7% average growth rate. It's much higher. And so absolutely, it could be even higher given uh, increases in, in growth of profitability for the average U.S. company. So it's anything's possible, but it certainly is possible for that. I, I did want to mention, though, if you look at the, the valuations in the market, a lot of people would say they're kind of frothy. They're kind of kind of looks overvalued, and I would agree. But basically everything does right now. It's, you know, people are investing in, you know, whether it's real estate, stocks, or, or even bonds hitting all-time high because the rates were at all-time low. Uh, pretty much everything out there looks a little frothy. Brian, when you are looking at your long-term investing plans, do you really worry about the Dow or, I mean, numbers like this, or do you just, you know, go ahead and do what you think you should do? Yeah, I worry about it a lot because, you know, I'm responsible for a lot of people's uh, money and and certainly uh, everybody has a different risk tolerance. So everybody's going to have a different level of worry. And that's why when we uh, initially do a financial plan and decide on where the money should be, we're never, you know, just just because I think the, the stock market is going to be fine long term doesn't mean I'm going to put everybody 100% into the market. That would make no sense at all. I have almost no clients that come to and go, I want all my money in the market all of the time. I just don't have that. Um, there are certain firms out there that that's what they want you to do, but I, I don't think that's a, a very prudent for a lot of people. And so just because I think it it's going to be good doesn't mean it will be. And uh, we might have some big interruptions. I don't know what's going to happen in the world. So that's why we integrate other things like safe money alternatives, like the fixed index annuities or fixed index universal life, or have you know passive real estate, maybe your own rentals, maybe you have your business or your residence, certainly. 
there's many different things uh, someone can invest in outside the stock market. Will the Dow reach 50,000 by 2030? Will it reach 60,000? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Not that too much further into the future. If you're looking to hire a new financial advisor, you have at least $500,000 or more to invest, and you want somebody who can give you a complete financial plan, we invite you to call 844-MADRONA for a complimentary financial review. That's right, a complimentary financial review that will not cost you anything. 844-MADRONA. You can also request your review online at Madrona. Financial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. We'll be right back with more of our show after this. Do you ever worry if your CPA and financial advisor are on the same page? You won't have to if you call Madrona Financial Services at 844-MADRONA or visit them at madronafinancial.com. Now, back to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. In this segment, we're going to be talking about the relative size of investment markets. And Brian, this is something that a lot of people misunderstand a little bit. They really are quite surprised at what the biggest sector of the market is. What is that? Yeah, the biggest sector of the investment world is bonds. And what is a bond? A bond is a loan. Uh, it's a loan to someone that's borrowing it. Their bond to you is to repay the loan with interest. And so the most common bond is a government bond. The government uh, pays its bills by borrowing from the investment public. And they borrow through something called treasury bonds or treasury bills or treasury notes, depending on the, the length of it. But a lot of their borrowings on 30-year treasury bonds and uh, they promise an interest rate for those 30 years and so people uh, can invest um, their money in in a promise from the government to repay them a promise from a city or municipality a promise from a corporation a corporate bond uh, but that's that's the biggest investment class and it's kind of that's kind of shocking I think to to me and many other people listening they go you mean the biggest investment in the world is is lending money. We're all like a bunch of little banks out there <laughs> making <Yeah>. loans to <laughs> back to governments and corporations. I mean, yeah, kind of, sort of. I mean, that is that is the biggest investment class out there uh, by far. Um, and so a lot of people are shocked to hear that. Brian, as of this recording, I mean, as you said, the bond market is, is the largest sector here. But if I am not mistaken, bonds really don't pay that much. So I wonder why it is such a large sector. Yeah, well, that's a great question right there. I mean, for years and years and years, uh, bonds have been kind of where people put to uh, maybe have a little more stability in their investments because stock markets can be very volatile. Bond markets are not as volatile, certainly. Um, And as uh, rates continue to decline, uh, your bonds that you owned were paying higher rates than new ones coming out, so they were being able to be sold at a premium. So people were making money on bonds for the last 30, 40 years. But uh, I don't suspect there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, ways that the interest rates are going to fall from where they are now. So it's going to be hard to make money on bonds just on interest rate changes going forward, much harder than it's been in the past. Uh, But you're right about low interest rates. I mean, there's some government bonds out there and certain 
countries that have negative yields. Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned on the show before, I'm a pretty smart guy. I know a lot about finances. I still can't figure out why somebody buys a German bond or a Swiss bond or a Japanese bond. Uh, I'll give you guys $100,000 if you promise to pay me back 99000 in 10 years. <laughs> I cannot make that math work, Jeff. I, I can't figure that one out. Yeah. And I mean, you can make almost any number work. I mean, you took that stats and probs class, right? I did take that class and I it just it just floors me but some people are just so worried about security that they're they're willing to give money to someone else not even get it all back but you know with the government US government of course uh, bond yields are, are you know maybe 1 to 2% uh, often is what we're seeing anymore and even that I, I have trouble justifying especially with inflation uh, much higher than that uh, you're losing buying power if nothing else so uh, but uh, people do it for the uh, the safety they feel like they get from investing in bonds so bonds are safe but you may not get the biggest return or bang for your buck on that bond market very large there next comes the stock market i was surprised that the stock market is second to bonds well, it is uh, as far as the investment market, although I'll, I'll hit us with another stat in a minute. But, uh, yeah, the stock market uh, pales in comparison to the bond market globally because of the amount of government borrowing around the globe. I mean, every country is financing by issuing bonds. It's it's easy. You just issue bonds, you get a bunch of money. Okay, well, someone else has to pay this back down the road. That's the government. The U.S. government is getting really good at that. You know, we're borrowing trillions of dollars every year and saying, well, uh, we got the money now. This is pretty awesome. Uh, maybe my kids or grandkids will pay it back. or Maybe not. I don't know. I won't be around to see it. So that's kind of, unfortunately, kind of the world we live in here. But uh, yeah, so that bond money, getting that money is pretty easy for for governments to do, it's huge. Now, equities, again, you'd, you'd think that the value of all publicly traded companies is is a much higher number relative to bonds, but it is not. Again, it, it, it's not even, uh, I, I don't even think it's it's half of, of what's in bonds. And there's there's no place I can look up and tell you exactly how big the bond market is or the equity market is. You know, I look at different sources, and generally I, I, it, it seems to me that the, the stock market uh, might be even uh, a third of what the bond market is. And is the reason for that, Brian, stocks are just you know more volatile and people just aren't willing to take that risk? Uh, that's a big reason for it. Another big reason for it is that there's a finite number of publicly traded companies and their valuation is somewhat tied to earnings. Whereas there is an infinite amount of governments and corporations that want to borrow money cheap. <laughs> and so that bond market can just keep growing, man. It could, it could go 10x tomorrow if the government just said, yeah, we're just, we're going to pass a new 100, you know, 200 trillion dollar green energy something something and we're going to fix everything and, and okay well the bond market just got <laughs> enormous you know or it already is but you know it, it's unlimited appetite for easy money as opposed to the unlimited you know there's not an unlimited amount of new publicly traded companies hitting the initial public offerings uh, every week so it sounds like the bond market is just more slow and steady, whereas the stock market can be up and down and up and down. And, you know, we all learned as kids that sometimes the tortoise wins the race over the hare. Is that always true? 
Uh, no, uh, it's not always true because bonds, yeah, I mean, bonds generally, I mean, you can have a bond that goes to zero, by the way, because uh, it's a promise to pay. And if they can't repay, well, they default. And so that's why a lot of people buy bonds and bond funds because of the default risk. You can buy junk bonds. Junk bonds are, are corporations that um, maybe will pay you back, maybe won't. They're not real strong financial condition. You get a better yield uh, if they do stay in business. Business, but uh, you know they, they can default. There's always that default risk. Now we, we talk about the market, yeah, you know, up and down, up and down. I would I would correct that and say up and up and up and down and up and up and down because mm-hmm. there's more ups and downs. That's why the market goes up over time. And so that's you know now we have the basis of just basic basic financial investment. Um, you know what people have done for millennials uh, is is to invest in stocks and bonds because they want the upside over the long term of the stock market and they want some stability maybe offered by a diversified set of bonds. When people talk about the market, primarily they think of the stock market and they think of the bond market, but the market is made up of just really a lot more than stocks and bonds. Real estate is in there too. Yeah, real estate. If you add the value of people's principal residences, it's actually maybe the biggest of all of the different areas. The data I've seen suggests that it is. Now, if you pull out people's principal residence uh, and just leave the investment real estate classification in there, uh, it's close to the value of the the stock market. Uh, So a lot of people are maybe surprised by that because all their money's in stocks and bonds and they don't have any allocation to investment real estate. And so you might want to consider that, you know, just throwing that out there, that that is a major asset class that is very underrepresented in a lot of the uh, profiles that I've seen. Uh, another couple of asset classes I just want to mention too is the insurance uh, world. Mm-hmm. So we have you know Wall Street that does stocks and bonds. We have insurance companies that does annuities and uh, life insurance as an asset class, so permanent life insurance. And so these are two very large areas of the market. I mean, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, they, these are big areas of the markets too that people can invest invest in. And the final classification is cash and cash equivalents. So I would say that uh, uh, certainly the insurance industry is smaller than Wall Street, but it's still a significant amount, over 10% of the, of the pie. So for the purposes of this conversation, Brian, we've been talking about stocks, bonds, real estate, insurance, cash, and cash equivalents. As far as stocks, bonds, and real estate prices go, I mean, do you think they're uncomfortably high at this point? Uh, generally speaking, yes. Um, it's it's tough to find a bargain. Uh, you're not going to find a lot of bargains. You go out looking for a house. Uh, you're not going to find a bargain. You go, uh, you like a company, you look at its price-earnings ratio, it's not going to be trading at uh, 10 times earnings. It might be 50 times earnings. Uh, you, you go get a bond and you go, well, I'd like to get a 6% yield on my bond. Good luck with that. Even a junk bond fund doesn't pay that. So now, oh boy, in the old days I could get that. In the old days, I could get a buy on a on a stock, or or I could get a buy on a house. And it's like, well, those those days are gone. Uh, all of the markets are 
are kind of frothy. They're they're kind of you know relatively high in evaluation, especially compared to historical averages. And that's just the world we live in right now. There's a lot of affluence and a lot of money's been made uh, over the last uh, decade plus globally, like a ridiculous amount. And so you have this ridiculous amount of new money chasing the same assets. Well, guess what? Those asset prices go up. We've been talking about the relative size of the markets with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And once again, to recap the uh, parts of the market, we've been talking about stocks, bonds, real estate, insurance, cash, and cash equivalents. There's a lot of great information online, by the way, at madronafinancial.com. We've got some guides there for you that don't necessarily talk about the size of the markets, but there's a lot of very good news that you can use at madronafinancial.com under the guide section. Brian, out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time. Certainly thank our listeners for joining us this week as well, too. For Brian Evans, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week with another edition of Growing Your Wealth. No statements made during the Growing Your Wealth radio show shall constitute tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own legal or tax professional on your individual information. Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services is licensed to offer investment advisory services through Madrona Financial Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Madrona Insurance Services, LLC, a licensed insurance agency and an affiliate of Madrona Financial Services. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors cannot invest directly into indexes. No investment strategy, including asset allocation or diversification, guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes. 